You're listening to the SpyFi After Dark Podcast. And we are back with SpyFi After Dark. Today we have our new guest, first time on his podcast. Want to say your name? Krish. Krish. What's going on, Krish? <laughs> and of course, Alex, as always. Hey, everyone. We're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to start with some COVID talk and he- healthcare system general talk. Um, I know we had promised to only do one COVID episode, but we're going to break the rule a little bit. There's six other episodes in between that one and this one. <laughs> I think that's pretty fair. Uh, and then towards the end, if we have some time, we may pivot to something a little more lighthearted. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, before we get started, this episode is sponsored by the Iowa Moccas Project. Uh, and of course, you can find me on Twitter at Millen Tweets and Instagram at Millen Grams. Chris, you have a handle you want to show or no or, or anything <laughs> you want people to know about at all or do you just want to be completely anonymous i'm silent on social media for the most part right, I'm, I'm in the dark because i don't i don't like getting caught up in the the it mm-hmm. the now i see okay <laughs> that's fine uh alex no same okay same well let's get into it then we're more or less useless <laughs> in that capacity <laughs> great conversation started, so. Uh, so we were talking before we started mm-hmm. about the healthcare system right um so i guess maybe we could just start with like single-payer healthcare as a discussion okay because it's obviously come up a lot in, in recent well times. you're gonna know a little bit more about single-payer than me but there are a few arguments there i'd like i just wanted to consider and i want to make sure that if single pair is considering the fact that we have a far more complex healthcare system than multiple other countries, then I understand it. Well, I think any realistic single player, single payer plan would account for the fact that there would have to, it would take time to fully implement the whole thing. Like it wouldn't just happen overnight. hundred percent. Um, so obviously there are logistic concerns. Right. And you were mentioning before we started, there's what were the different factors in the current pricing model? You want to lay those out again? The different factors in the pricing model of keeping a patient in the hospital or charging for a specific medication. Yeah. Just just essentially all the moving parts because that may not be understood by the general person. There's there's so many moving parts, man. I mean, it's it's just the fact that the some a procedure or a medication can cost so very like the the variability in that cost across the nation within the same state in different hospital like also, systems you got to talk directly to it okay got it that's the most important part okay so the the variability is just so high it's it's unbelievable it, it, you could pay a certain amount for a certain medication in uh you know a hospital system run by dignity health and it could cost you way more or way less based on the relationships they have with PBMs, the relationships they have with whoever else. They're, it's just a complicated system with no true visibility to the back end on how a hospital system is functioning. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't believe that there's that much visibility. We have a very complex system. Um, a single pair, like Canada has... Canada has a like a generalized yeah um, mm-hmm. healthcare system mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and they do a relatively I mean it, it's also relatively your, standard you have your, the same you have the same price and has to be the same direction so okay, even okay. if you move your head you gotta like do this you gotta okay. pivot around it's 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 all real I mean the you are expecting to pay the same for the same procedure anywhere you go across the country you're not you don't expect to pay for pregnancies you don't expect to pay for you know delivery and all that stuff mm-hmm. there is an expectation in the US and I think that the biggest complication comes from the fact that there is no standardization mm-hmm. in that model so like I don't know as a if I had a child, I don't know if I'm going to pay $10,000 out the door or $25,000 out the door for mm. the same procedure. Well, I mean, first of all, that would be a medical miracle. Right. But what? If you had a child. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. If my significant other had a child okay. in the future. Uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's uh, basically no transparency mm-hmm. and you do not know what it's going to cost going in the door. Yeah. There was a proposed rule change 
um, under the Trump administration to require healthcare providers to disclose their negotiated insurance prices mm-hmm. publicly for anyone, which I support. But I think it doesn't really solve the core of the problem. Right. It's just a slightly better improvement on what already exists, theoretically. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot of problems. One of the things that when I was doing my master's in biomedical diagnostics, I did my, sorry, sorry. I'm uh, excited about this. You got, you got to get used to it. It's literally like, you got to, you got to like, yeah, yeah, you know. Dude, my nose is so freaking itchy. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) To the audience, he's allergic to cats. Yes. (laughs) And I have a cat. Um, Where was I? Well, he was talking about how um, I was saying it, that rule change doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, it was, he said, and then you said there are a myriad of problems. More yes. to it than that. More to the the lack well, of. Well, I lost my place. Okay, simple as that. All right. Oh no, th- I found it. Uh, <laughs> I was doing a comparative analysis of the FDA versus other um, countries and uh-huh. how they get their evidentiary requirements for releasing drugs to the public. And my biggest issue with the FDA is all they care about, and I could be wrong. I could, this could be a generalization, right? This could be not applicable to every uh, drug on the market. All they care about is comparatively is a drug that's released on the market better than a placebo. And is it super dangerous? If it's super dangerous, then you have to have a REMS program in place, which is just a risk assessment and mitigation process that um, makes sure that whoever is, uh, I mean, it's just the doctor has to basically sign off saying, I'm, I know I'm giving a dangerous drug. And the REMS, psych, a REMS program is, is mm-hmm. there to make sure that you have that. So if a drug is proven to be a mutagen, like a teratogen, something that causes birth defects, then you have to make sure that you're not hitting the right demographic, right? If you're, if you're hitting mm-hmm. a demographic of like women in their 30s or, t- or late 20s and they're having kids, that's a dangerous demographic to, to introduce that drug into. So REMS kind of keeps doctors in check in that sense. So it's more about uh, liability mitigation versus betterment for people. Right. But like it could be as minimally clinically efficacious as possible, but it's a risk reward thing. Exactly. It's like, oh, it's, this is, this is, this has a net benefit and the net benefit can be very, very minute and it's fine. That's, yeah. Is that what you're saying? That's the yeah. problem. And the, the real problem here is, okay, so like there's these companies, uh, these pharmaceutical manufacturers who get into this market in the U S a specific silo of pharmaceutical manufacturing called, um, uh, me too product entanglement. And what it is, is essentially I entered a brand new, let's say I am a, uh, let's say I'm Roche and I entered a market that is, hasn't been tapped into yet in in terms of medicine. And I've spent hundreds of millions of dollars in research and I come out with this fantastic drug. It has very little side effects. It's targeted toward toward this specific market. Now I'm another manufacturer. I'm I'm not going to name names because I'm not going to, I'm too scared to name names. But <laughs> let's say there's another manufacturer and they see, oh, Roche entered the space. Now the only one's there. Well, let's spend a few million dollars on building something that's better than a placebo for that market. And then we spend all the rest of the money on hiring sales. Yeah, marketing. To go talk to the doctors because doctors are heavily underinformed. I mean, most doctors nowadays don't even know genetics, right? Most doctors that are practicing have been practicing for so many years that the part of their curriculum didn't include genetics. Can I ask a really weird question? Because I'm uninformed of this. Is there also a problem with it? Because like Roche has the tech and resources to spend the capital on clinically validating a drug and then maybe a competitor can just piggyback and leverage all the expenditure on something that may not even be better or more effective. And that's another problem. It could very well be that I can't inform. That's like, that that's understanding. like bad behavior coming from this is what I'm saying. Is that possible? Yeah, I can't inform that understanding. I would believe that that's the case, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. All I know is you have to be better than a placebo and that's all you need. So in this country, if you make a fantastic drug to fight something, to, to, to combat something, somebody else could enter that market get more visibility because they're paying way more money for sales Marketing to go talk to your clinics and yeah, doctors and just wash you out and wash you out mm-hmm. and probably leverage. Well, and all, and I think that also ties into a larger problem, which is that, um, 
pharmaceutical companies in general will cite R&D costs as a reason for uh, pharma being so expensive. But in reality, they actually spend more money on marketing and administration and executive salaries and dividends than they do on R&D by a lot. And I don't like I don't want to generalize pharma companies because it it turns into this conversation about them being inherently evil. And I don't believe that either. Right. Because it's it's not we can't be we can't live in like this black and white world of pharmaceutical manufacturers being evil and everybody else being duped by them because they exist for a reason and they have progressed medicine and helped us survive longer. Quality of life has improved holistically too. So it's like, right. Well, right. You're simplifying what I'm saying in six, six sentences. No, he's he's right. The thing is there's no check against them. Yeah. So there's a, there's an inherent enigmatic factor with healthcare too. Like, like, like when it comes to talking about bettering quality of life or coming up with healthcare related solutions, it's hard to quantify too it's tough there and like you could say that like pharmaceutical solutions hide behind that and fundamentally you can i mean all they have to quantify and be accountable for is whether or not they're hurting patients but there is like a there is like how do i explain this you can't do you know what i'm kind of saying i'm trying to say that like essentially it's easy for pharmaceutical companies to take advantage of something that's very complicated like healthcare. Yeah. When it comes to product development. Yeah. Which sucks, but that's just inherent. That's a, well, yeah, that's, that's basically what I'm saying is there's no one, there's no one really holding them accountable. It's also very anything. difficult to hold them accountable. It's very, it's a very complex matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's but very it, difficult. And there's some crazy shit that goes on. I mean, we, you have a uh, specialty pharmacies that are also tied to certain healthcare pairs. Can you believe that? Like, can you believe that? So like you should always have this distribution, right? You can't have the, the reason that like McKesson, for example, is a massive distribution company. They can't enter the pharmaceutical space as a, as an organization. There's, there's like checks in place for that because then you control everything, mm-hmm. right? There's no reason for well, them. I'm to, glad that exists. I didn't have the faith that it actually exists. I think it exists. Now that I'm saying it, I'm scared that it doesn't. And I look <laughs> like an idiot, but I'm pretty sure it exists. I hope it if exists. It's, if it doesn't exist, then it answers why you have a company like, for example, UHC. Um, I'm not saying they're evil. I, again, because the thing is, I've had their Are massive, they a competitor of McKesson? No, they're, payer, they're pharmaceutical pair, United oh. Healthcare. United Healthcare, yeah. So, oh, UHC. Oh, UHC. Sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry, sorry. No, I'm, stupid. I'm stupid. I'm stupid for, I shouldn't have, abbreviated. there's no. no reason to. I mean, um, I knew what it was. Yeah. Right. I should have yeah. known. Cool. Yeah. So Alex is a dumb one. Yes. Let's move on. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. That sounds like a break. No. <laughs> no? Okay. So like United Healthcare actually owns Optum, who ships a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals to people's houses, right? So Optum is a like a specialty pharmacy. And you, the payer that is paying to this specialty or that is compensating or that's paying the certain part of the the fee for the drug company the insurance itself has that company so they're whatever their fees they're saying they're paying for part of this drug they're paying less yes themselves Yes. yes yeah so like that exists so i understand the the, that's how, the equivalent of Amazon. Yeah, I understand yes. how unsettled like the, people are. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I, under, I understand how unsettled they are, um, and I understand that a lot of pharmaceutical manufacturers use the United States specifically as a way to make money back. Right? They don't charge the same for a brand new drug in other countries that they well, do here. Other countries won't let them get away with it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So they make up a lot of the money here. Well, let's be clear. They still make money in those other countries. It's not that they're losing money. Oh, yeah. Because they wouldn't even be in the market if they were losing money. They just make all their profit here. Um, Well, no. If they're making money, they're essentially making profit. They're... You could say just say just say in short they're maximizing here. They're maximizing, yeah, yes. for sure. Yes, they're maximizing their income. This is where for the all first the shareholder years. profit comes from. The vast majority, yeah, uh, the majority, the majority, a, a good chunk of it. Yes, a lot of it, and and I and I disagree with that. I, there's a lot of systems in place that I disagree with, and I think fundamentally that's that is the issue. Is we we fix how we approach healthcare rather than. I don't, I don't know where I was going with this argument. 
No. Because uh, I'm anti-single pair system in, in terms of like blindly canvassing a single pair system, like just like in putting a single pair system in place. If it is specifically meant to deal with like negotiating, helping hospitals get the best prices for, let's say, you know, um, hip uh, replacement, you know, pieces, parts for mm. surgeries, whatever it is, you're, you're generally negotiating, right? So different hospitals are getting different prices for the, from the same manufacturer. Mm -hmm. There's always these back end meetings. Mm -hmm. If a single pair system could remove that and it could make it so that if that manufacturer is selling to any person in the U S any healthcare system in the U S any part of the healthcare system in the U S sorry, uh, that they would be paying the, whoever is paying is paying the same price. That's beautiful. And I would love that if that that's, that's what a single pair system can accomplish. Well, that's what it's supposed to do. I don't think it. That's what it does in most countries where it's, it's implemented. The, I understand, but the the problem is the sing, a single pair system is implemented in most countries as the be all end all, or the majority stakeholder. In the U.S., they're not trying to take that position, especially because we're super pro-business. Well, it depends on who you talk to, but right. yes. And we don't have the lobbying power to combat um, uh, Currently payers. No. Currently we just, no. yeah, We don't have the resources to combat payers. And there's no reason to get rid of the privatized system. If it's effective, all it needs is a few more checks and balances. So, well, But the argument is it's not effective. And a few more checks and balances would make a difference, but wouldn't actually, it wouldn't be the same. How do you get rid of that, man? How do you get rid I of a... I thought the quality of well, healthcare like here is good, but wait, but vastly too expensive. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even that, the quality of healthcare is very variable. Yes. Because our average quality of healthcare is not that great. But our quality of healthcare at the top I'm, 10% is yeah, really good. Yeah, but I'm actually good. also... But, but when it comes to... Because our life expectancy is not at the top of the... It's not even close to the top of the world. Our <clears> infant <throat> mortality is like... It's embarrassingly low. Well, we okay, could, we infant could mortality is more interesting to me, but life expectancy has nothing to do, in my opinion, with what we're talking about. Because that's because obesity. Well, yeah. there's there's clearly other factors. Yes, but to, it, because healthcare healthcare healthcare, does affect it. healthcare across the world is not preventative based. That's a that's that's beyond what we're well, talking about but yes and no i mean if you have no costs for going to the doctor you're talking about primary care yeah fundamentally like primary care, to to doctor if primary care is like yeah is very very yes and no and that's preventative i also think that there's just an inherent compliance issue here and like a lifestyle issue here a lifestyle issue yeah i, I think people here work more sleep less we're number two in the world for oh, obesity. Oh, okay, I'm talking yeah, about things yes. that, that are going against a whole preventative I, I installment. So, no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. I'm talking about that. Go on. Keep talking. Yeah. Um, I'm well, just, I mean, I, I'm just clear, looking at it at the low end and the high end. And I was right. asking about like what are what the what the ceiling is for the healthcare you can get in the United States and what the low end is. I understand that like well, that's the average the healthcare. So we have, you're saying we have such aggressively confounding factors. Yeah, before getting not, rid of before just saying. But even I take life expectancy out of the equation in general. Okay. Just in general, healthcare outcomes are very basically segregated. Right. It's and it's just yeah. It's because we have a system that is based on individuals paying for their health care to some extent or another. And if you work a white collar job with great health insurance, you're going to access the doctor more often. Yes. You're going to do more preventative yes. care. You're going to be on top of your chronic diseases. Right. Um, yes. And the obviously the flip side to this being that if we have all these people who don't do those things, eventually they end up being more expensive. Right. Because they have to do something at some point and they won't be able to pay for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when they can't pay for it, effectively, everyone who has insurance pays for it next mm -hmm. year. Yeah. They don't pay for it right then. They pay for it the next year because yeah. the rates go Just, up. It's very interesting. How about, I mean, a, lot how about this? a lot of healthcare solutions that, um, you know, we give other countries credit for. They stem from a lot of innovation here. It's just a system and distribution of that here is shit. But at the end of the day, a capitalist world like earth's capitalist nation like here also spurns the innovation and like acceleration well, it's to, like weird situation clear, i, I, I course, shouldn't think united retrospectively states, but well of course like, the united states is the origin for 
a, a lot of drugs and a lot of devices that are then used elsewhere. And then their healthcare system is catered for better overall healthcare than Although, here. Let's also not forget that many of those drugs, and I'm not sure about devices, but many of those drugs, the initial research is funded by government funding in universities. And then it's bought for effectively pennies on the dollar by a pharma company to distribute, uh, to, well, to get through FDA and then distribute. Um, so yes, like obviously the United States, our healthcare system creates many of the component parts that go into other healthcare yep. systems around yes. the world. That's but obviously I don't think we have to operate the way we operate to continue that. I, I just, yes, I, I don't like, <clears throat> here's, I see a few huge operational inefficiencies that could be fixed and that could help because at the end of the day, we're trying to look, we're looking for patient outcomes. We're trying to fix patient outcomes. We're trying to make people healthier. If that, like, it's kind of like a, you know how sustainability was like shit talked in the early 2000s. Everybody's like, the hell are you talking about sustainability? You're wasting our money, right? This is what corporations would say. You're wasting our money. You're throwing away our money. You're forcing us to lose money. That was the argument. And then five or six or seven years down the road, when the technology progressed enough, they started recognizing that they're actually saving tons of money mm -hmm. over the course of the, the life of whatever technology they're so using. So incentives drive, drive change. The incentives drive change. Um, the incentive here is to, should be to make the patient healthier. Um, and if we can do that, and if we can improve certain technologies to be able to capture that, we don't need to overhaul a system. One of the things I've observed is the electronic medical records, right? So you go to the do uh, hospital office. Well, hold on, before we get into this, this is uh, break numero uno. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. We'll be back in a minute. Hey there, podcast listeners. This episode of Spy Fi After Dark is sponsored by me. That's right, me. Specifically, it's sponsored by the Iowa Moccas Project, which is an electoral technology project and accompanying live stream happening sometime in August. I've talked about the Moccas on here before, so I'm not going to bore you with the details. Head on over to iowamoccas.com to learn more about it. But the short version is that it's a caucus app. We're going to basically show that the Iowa Democratic caucuses in 2020 were a sham and should never have been accepted. It's going to be a great time, going to be lots of fun. Check it out, iowamoccas.com. But specifically, what I wanted to talk to you about today was the Iowa Moccas devlogs that I'm doing on YouTube. You can find these by heading on over to YouTube and searching for SpyFi, which is the channel that the devlogs are on. Or I mean, you could just search for Iowa Moccas devlog, I guess, if you wanted to. And basically, it's a behind the scenes process of how I'm building the Iowa Moccas. The first devlog was on the marketing strategy for the Moccas. And the second devlog, which I'm currently working on, is on how I'm building the software. It's kind of like a layman's version of how I make software. Anyways, we'll have other topics on there too. I'm hoping to produce episodes every other week or so. And they give you an insight into what the process of building something like this is like. So head on over to YouTube, search for SpyFi, search for Iowa Moccas devlog, check them out, hit that subscribe button. You know how it is. That's it for me. Let's get back to the video. All right, and we are back. <laughs> um, so where were we exactly? Just picking up on... So there's a few more things I was talking about. One was EMR. Yeah. I started with EMR. Yes, EMR. That's um, right. Mm -hmm. EMR, by the way, stands for Electronic Medical, medical records. records. Sorry. I keep doing that. It's fine. I it's not me being a prissy asshole. I promise. Okay. I, no, that's that's you being uh, in the world. In the weeds, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I've been exposed to it, which is helpful for me to be able mm -hmm. to make have this conversation. I don't think that I'm uh, more informed than most people. It's just the world I'm in. Um, <laughs> thank you. So there's a few things. I'll start with EMR. I think electronic medical record systems are designed for the wrong purpose. They're designed, they're not designed to help patient outcomes, uh -huh. right? So like, what would you imagine a true like patient history, social history, medical history, surgical history, fam familial history? What would you 
imagine a system like that would be designed to do. It would be designed to take a patient's input, their familial input. It would be designed, it would track all possible, like it would use all possible predictive analytics. Optimize clinical decision making. Yeah, right. So 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 that your medical, so like you're never going to catch 100%. Well, let's, I mean, let's, first of all, let's be clear that the first problem is there are too many EMR systems. Right. No one is on the the same system. And there's no, even if you have different systems, there should be a standardized input and data format. 100%. Oh, yes. 100%. And then when you sign up for an EMS, it should look up your information in all the competing uh, EMR, sorry, all the competing EMRs and coagulate them together. There should be a platform too. Like if, if if a hospital wanted to switch. That should be easy too. Exactly. 100%. It be it just, it's like car so insurance. Switch, I mean, it should, it should be very. But, and that's why it isn't, is because the companies who make it uh, don't want their customers to switch. They want it to be as difficult as possible, so they don't make it easy. But the uh, the other thing is, it's not EMRs are not built for doctors. That's why it's hard to get doctors to write notes. Who are they built for? They're built for administrators. Okay, that's what I figured. They're billing systems. They're not patient care systems. You're tracking all this patient information, but it's essentially a billing system. It's saying the patient was here for this issue. We gave them this drug and we spent this much time with them. The ICD-10 codes, pick out your ICD-10 code, pick out your CPT-4 code, pick out all your different codes for how, and then use that to build the patient. Make sure your claims come in correctly. You, you Make sure the, the EMR captures all the information that's necessary so that when you fill out your claims form, mm-hmm. they get accepted. They get accepted. Yeah. Right, that you would the, the ultimate point of an EMR is to make sure that the clinic or hospital gets paid for their services. Now that's great, but that should be secondary. And it should, right? Well, it should be a separate function. Right, it should be. It mm-hmm. should be like if if Amazon was built on its payment system and not its distribution of not like, its logistics, not system. its lo- yeah. logistics. What the hell would like? It would be a piece of shit. Yeah. My question to you guys is: Is there is there actually is this just the fact that the terms are interchangeable or is this because that exists? There's also EHRs. Are EHRs separate than it's EMRs? Are they? Okay. Electronic okay. health record. Yes. Medical yes. I was curious if like that actually was mm. more in the weeds and like incorporated UIs for cl- uh, clinicians. Yeah. More about okay, how. So, so here's a pitch then. Open source EHR data format that is built into an app that just tracks someone's information yes and that's it with a bunch of data analytics attached to it because that's the well, most that's, important that's part. what the mm-hmm. market does the market then so you just put on an open source format for the data and then the market can go and innovate and on top it. of that okay. and can make their own ehr that adds you know predictive ai and whatever else they want to well payers the buzzwords they want to throw payers and the government give you an idea of what you should be looking for anyway they, they you don't like clinics are so overwhelmed by the low quality of their EMR systems that they don't do half the things that they could do for a lot of money. Okay. Like, so this, that's interesting. Uh, my mom is a nurse practitioner, mm-hmm. psychiatric nurse practitioner. So she works with an EMR system all the time mm-hmm. and she is smart enough to look at all the different billing codes and understand like how she can bill to maximize Revenue. revenue she doesn't work for herself she works for a clinic right but she does her best to maximize the revenue of her visits for her clinic because like it just occurs to her to do that right versus she has colleagues that don't do that and they end up billing less than they probably could mm-hmm. and most of their funds in their case come from the state health agency um and and medicaid and so I just, I've realized that was like a related right. topic of these systems. You have to kind of know how to set up your data and your notes. The way she describes it, she has to write her notes in a certain way in order to qualify for certain codes that, uh, that pay better. Right. So it's nuanced 100%. a little bit. It's nuanced because it's, it, it completely depends on how, if your claims are going to get rejected or not to yes. like your doctor's notes, the information you put on there. And I agree, but I think that, Clinics are being forced to look at the short-term billing versus the long-term payment for things that they could address, like for specific demographics that they're not addressing. So like if you have a, if you're a certain type of clinic um, and you have a certain patient demographic that your clinic 
attends to more your payers that you're attached to and your, um, cause like, you know how you certain clinics won't support certain payers, right? So like if you have, uh, Aetna, you might not be able to go to a certain clinic. Yeah. Um, so they have that relationship with a payer and they have a relationship with the government and all of those, both of those entities give them incentive structures. So like, they're like, Hey, you hit this mark, we'll give you this much money. You hit this mark, we give the, we give you this much money, but they don't have a system. They don't have any kind of technology to be able to enable them to succeed in that. So the only person that's collecting the data analytics is the healthcare, the payer or the government who's looking at the macro view and taking all this data and actually computing that. But they don't have the capability. If clinics and hospitals had data analytics in their fingertips, it would be a lot easier for them to hit those goals and get that money so you can charge the patients a little less and you still won't be screwed over. You still end up making more money mm -hmm. as a clinic. And that's the most important thing is we need to figure, figure out what is hurting patient outcomes, fix those because that'll end up saving patients lives and payers money. And there's nothing wrong with doing both. It's extremely important to make sure businesses are making money. But if you're a for-profit organization, your goal is to make money. So if anybody's, proposes something that fucks you over there. Nobody's going to listen. You're going to try to fight it. But if you are saving money and your patient outcomes are better, that is a win-win for both sides. That's what we need to concentrate on in the healthcare system. So I think, um, in a way that's one of the best arguments for single payer because you, reduce, it's an overhaul. You reduce all the administrative overhead of running a clinic instead of having to negotiate deals with three dozen different payers or more, and instead of having to maintain all these different billing codes and billing systems for all these payers, you have one system and one system alone that covers, you know, 90% of people or whatever. hundred percent. And then that reduces your costs as a clinic considerably. You don't have to have so much billing staff and administrative staff. Yeah, administrative overhead can go down from it. Yeah. So that's, um, the, for me personally, that's the main reason I support single payer as a policy yeah. because it's going to be so much cheaper and you're still going to have better health outcomes. The, the fundamental um, issue for me is what we talked about in the break is um, I have no faith in a single payer system working out with knowing that the leadership who is going to be running the establishment of that single payer system is not... Um, the best people for the so, job. So then flip it or around. Not, or not. For all those countries that do have a successful single payer system, what makes that a successful system? What makes that a successful system? Mm -hmm. It works for the average civilian and they're willing to pay a little more in taxes. Generally, European countries so, charge more in taxes. So between, between that and proposed system in America, like what's the difference? Like, why is it not a good idea in America, but a great idea in these other countries? Is it just the quality of leadership? Because, because it, well, the quality of leadership is, is, is one of the things I'm concerned about because we have a lobbying structure that a lot of countries don't, right? We have too much from on a state level and federal level. Mm -hmm. We have extreme and state level is way worse. And we have states rights. So like a lot of like the federal implication of doing it, like, if you tried to federally implement a single payer system, you'd have to you'd have to figure out a way a way for that to also be able to be tweaked state to state because states are going to want that ability. And in the federal government in the U.S. especially, like always supports the state. It's always about states. Um, so that makes it a hundred times more complicated. But the fact that you have people in senior positions making decisions for single payer system that are lobbied for, where you know that that, that individual is not there for their intellect, intellectual capability, but because they've been there for 20 years and they're in that role, now they're making a decision. They're making, they have to reach out to so-called SMEs, subject matter experts in the field to be able to start making those decisions. And those policy experts are either individuals that are coming from organizations that are already lobbying those politicians or those decision makers, mm -hmm. or they are individuals who probably are also directly lobbied against. So like, so, but how, so how do they make these decisions in other countries? I don't know, man. All I know is what's happening in the U S my, my point being, 
it would be worthwhile, and I don't know the answer either, mm-hmm. it would be worthwhile to discover what it is that makes these systems successful in other countries because they're clearly successful. It's clearly something worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. But right? uh, Chris has also just identified like a, a smaller but very immediate problem that we could tackle, which is administrative overhead due to an issue with billing, due to... Unnecessary so complexity, and you were and you were saying that that could lead us to consolidating and single payer, but that's something we could focus on now. So, yeah. are you pitching us a new startup idea? Is that <laughs> the open Dude, source? There's idea, so many ideas. But the open source idea is good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for data analytics to come. It's into. a great idea. That, I always, that, I always you, thought it would be really cool uh, beyond the open. Like you build this on top of the open source uh, data record uh, setup, but you have a an EHR that exists locally on your um, on your phone doesn't exist on a server. We we I mean that was that, that was my, that was my project. Yeah, it's yeah. basically adapted version. Yeah, of, yeah. Of three which, layer of security. It doesn't have to be. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and you, yeah. you do either a biometric lock or something. Yeah. But basically, you have it scans with RFID. They have an RFID scanner. Boom, and then transfers your data to them to use yeah. for their current session. Yeah. The design decisions made in the healthcare space are so much more rudimentary than if you're in software. And I think we are approaching healthcare with the mentality of software. And you have to understand that people who participate in the healthcare system are That's disrespectful, dude. They yes. don't they don't know. They don't know. They're not no, trained. You're hundred percent right. And they get intimidated. And and I think any system that so like we have to grow into that. We have, to, we have to grow into that. And I, it is the future for it, but it is the newer generation that's going to adapt to that, not mm-hmm. the vast majority of, pop, of the population. And the most effective way to treat this problem is to figure out something that all doctors can do or most of them can do because they don't even have to do anything. Well, yeah. So just from listen my, to a system. From my perspective at a high level, the American medical system seems to be pretty rough for most providers and doctors and of course for patients mm-hmm. and all the benefits are currently going to drug companies, device manufacturers and health insurance companies right. for the most part. Um, and so obviously that signals the fact that our current system is just fundamentally lopsided. Right. And of course my argument would be there's no, there's really no fixing that you have to design something new because right. it's fundamentally corrupted. Yeah. But there are certainly opportunities for improvement where we are. I just think that the question is, is it worth expending the time, energy and political capital on those instead of just putting it towards replacing it wholesale? See, but, but the, there's behavioral change implications with his idea yeah. too. Like it could have a cascading effect and things could really improve with that change. You don't necessarily have to overhaul it. Yeah. I don't think you'd have to overhaul it. You have to understand that my perspective is fundamentally like is comes from this place where I fundamentally why does he keep saying the word fundamentally? Because it's uh, a fun word. <clears throat> yeah. Where I am scared of lobbying. I am truly scared of lobbying. And so if I am on the other side of lobbying where I can get screwed based on that, I'm, I'm, I don't think it'll be successful. That's why I'm scared of a single payer system. But if you are lobbying, if, if you're trying to make sm- small changes that will have a massive impact, right? Change the e- e- EMR system, talk, change um, the FDA approval process, change Clear Labs. Those are things I'll talk about Clear Labs too. Um, those are the things that we could do to directly impact things and we could be on the lobbying side of that. So like, I don't think lobbying is, is the most evil thing, but I think that we need to wield it. It's, it's a, well, it's yes. the most lobbying, powerful weapon in politics. Lobbying has to exist because politicians themselves and their staff don't have the resources to understand the nuances of every issue. Yeah. And there are stakeholders in any issue that deserve to at least have something to say. Oh, there's yeah. stakeholders. Yes. So instead yeah. of no, giving yes. them, so like w- you take the democratic party, every single person is going to have a slightly different interpretation of what a single pair system means to them in terms yes. of how it applies. Why present a generic idea that's hard to, to digest rather than giving them three solid ideas that will definitely make a positive impact. And that's very hard to forget. 
it's hard. It's, it's so easy to understand once you get introduced to it. Like, so for, for me, it's fundamentally changing how F the FDA approves medication, making it cheaper for higher quality things to get through. And I know they have a fast track process, but I still don't believe it's good. Um, changing how EMRs work and changing CLIA labs. And I don't think this directly affects costs as much, but I think it affects the outcome of care because there's these things called CLIA labs. Like you have a yeah, Quest, your, Quest Sonora and all those. So I, Wait, what my does issue, CLIA stand for? Oh, I, <laughs> I forgot. I don't remember, man. <laughs> you don't Let's have to look, look it up. up. Okay. So, CLIA labs, Sonora, what else was it? There are these governmentally approved labs for yeah, CLIA, testing. CLIA is, I think is a, FDA is the one who gives them a CLIA certification. Sorry, go ahead. No, that was, no, I, no I think CLIA itself is a is an entity. Yes. Like an off, and it's like, it's like, hey, I have these devices to be able to do this thing in my lab. I have this, like, the, the CLIA has, like, a certain criterion. And you meet that, you check all the boxes, your lab suddenly becomes a CLIA lab. And the problem with that is then after that you get that certification, you can do whatever the yeah, it's fuck very soft you want to do. Hmm. I can't. So, for example, I am a personalized medicine manufacturer. If I am building personalized medicines, that's genetics based. Right. So to figure out if it's going to be effective for somebody, you also have to have a companion diagnostic that actually checks their blood and says, hey, you have the right genes for this thing so we can prescribe it to you. It'll be effective because this thing is a hundred thousand dollar treatment, but we know it'll cure you. That's why it's personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. So uh, an organization, let's take Roche as an example again, because it's immediate for me. They're it's easy, easy to yeah, discuss because they build a lot of good shit. Genentech. Roche's subsidiary mm -hmm. builds these drugs and Roche or Roche tissue diagnostics in, in Tucson, Ventana builds the companion diagnostics for it. So you, those companion diagnostics are critically important, right? Cause if they, if they're wrong, a solution's only as good as the, as the companion diagnostic. Yeah, you're right. If they're wrong, think about yeah. your payers are not going to want to pay for that drug anymore in the future. In the, so in the future, if you know you're almost 100% right with your companion diagnostics and anybody that the companion diagnostic says is viable for this treatment is viable, then the payer is going to be like, okay, that's perfect. Because it, we're paying immediately, but we're getting a huge outcome. It, reduced cost for the patient. Is the CLIA, mm -hmm. is the CLIA certification too too big of a barrier to entry cost wise is that what you're worried about no, what's, so what's, what's those labs are the ones that are regular like allowed to do those run those tests on those companion diagnostics so if i'm manufacturing companion diagnostic i have to go give it to those labs right and i have to teach them how to use it now they learned how to use it they reverse they reverse engineer it and they don't have to get any kind of fda additional additional to use that and they can tell that so they can say hey you want to check this patient for this drug Use our companion diagnostic, and it'll cost you a lot less than Roche's version. But it doesn't have to be reapproved. Doesn't have to be reapproved. That's messed up. That's my huge issue. So there's a few fundamental things that I'm like, this is fucked. Okay. And if we could fix those three things, well, that's three actionable items. Yeah. Like that. Simple actionable items. All right, we're gonna go into break numero dos. <laughs> we'll be back in a second. Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Millen Singh, host of SpyFi After Dark. I'm here to just please ask you to rate and or subscribe on whatever platform you might be listening on. It really makes a really big difference to us and it makes us feel really good about ourselves. So you really should just do it for that reason alone, honestly. But seriously, it boosts our organic search rankings and makes it easier for people to find the podcast. And so it would really help us out a lot if you could shoot us a rating, subscription, whatever's applicable on whatever platform you might be listening on. Anyways, that's it for me. Let's get back to the episode. <clears throat> All right, and we're back for part three. Finale. I've already said what I want to say. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we were just, during the break, discussing... Like what are, what's the barrier to implementing the EMR? Mm. Like an EMR that actually functions as an EMR. And I was saying that I think that really the main road, uh, roadblock is just the cost mm -hmm. of implementing. Um, and growing pains. 
there's scrolling. There's like there's a user cost user, because yeah, yeah. I do think a lot of providers, uh, doctors are older doctors now, mm-hmm. because we're not we're not graduating enough doctors. Yeah, like the requirements to get into med school are too high, and therefore we're not getting enough people going through med school, which is mostly because the boards that certify doctors want to try to make themselves exclusive so they can charge more money. Yeah. Um. And so, but as a result, providers are technologically outdated and in many cases don't have a lot of cash reserves to invest in a new system. And, They're scared. And any sort of, any sort of change like this, it's, it's costly in so many ways between outright cost and then labor cost and time yeah. to switch and training and all that. Like there's a lot of costs involved in a switch like this. And they already went through the process of adopting an EMR and they found it, it was a really shitty process. So they're probably very hesitant to consider anything else at this point. And they're just yeah. like, you know what, this kind of patchwork works for now. We're surviving. We'll keep going. I really just think they're in a survival mindset yeah. and they're not exactly. operating from a place of any sort of abundance. So they can't make an investment. I can only imagine because everything is a sales pitch to a clinic. Everything yeah. from what drug you should prescribe to what EMR you should use is a sales pitch on the part of the business that you're never trained in as a doctor. Yes. You're a family practice doctor. You're running a clinic or you own a clinic. You're not trained in that aspect of the business. You're only trained in being a doctor. Everything else is, do I believe this guy? And they've been let down enough times that they don't anymore. Especially the ones that have been practicing for so many years. This kind of circles back to a larger concept that I've thought about. Which is, I think we need to determine a new model that sits somewhere between for-profit and non-profit. Yeah. Because (laughs) there are things like, in my opinion, healthcare is much more like education than it is like a consumer good. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty widely considered at this point that education should be operated Mm -hmm. non-profit. And so I think healthcare we need to have some sort of a shift to take some of the profit motive out of it, out of some areas that don't, that where it's hurting the business. Mm. Um, so what do you think of the concept of requiring all healthcare insurance companies to be nonprofit companies <laughs> as an interim step you know, it, to single pair? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a great idea if it, if it was viable again, like I don't, I'm but, not arguing against why single pair. Why would it be viable? We, there's no, we're not, uh, we're not implementing any new administration here. We're just right. saying you have to operate as a nonprofit. Yeah. We haven't even done that with our jails yet. How do you think we're going to do that no. with our healthcare care system? I mean, that's the worst offense. You're putting people in jail and you're incentivizing private prisons to keep them in jail. And free labor. Which yeah. Mill and with I talked about. demerit yes. system. The fuck? is that i mean 10 times more demerit i mean like what what is the number private prisons should be well the thing with private prisons is that's something that has creeped in Mm -hmm. like this prison system was always a public system yeah and private prisons have creeped their way on in over the past 20 30 years yeah i mean it started with reagan yeah right but it's at the end of the day we have the majority of our population in private prisons correct it's not, I don't think it's in government prisons. Oh, and no, the, car, the incarcerated. I think, so. I think private prisons are still a minority, are they? but it depends on the level you're talking about. I'm pretty sure it's different on a, so this, it's different state to state federal prisons. I'm sure I'm pretty sure are all government run or primarily government run. Okay. Uh, states have different policies. Like I know Arizona does contract with private prisons. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what the percentage is of total population. Yeah. But there's a, there's a huge issue with that too, because, oh God, if we jump into that, um, well, there's a few fundamental issues I have with private prisons. First thing, it should never be a for-profit model because you're incentivizing people to stay in jail. Yeah. Right. You get paid for how many people are in your prison. Yeah. Secondary to that, a lot of these contracts that states sign with private prisons are capacities. So like are for specific capacity. So if you are under the capacity, they can fine you. A private prison can fine. Like, I think Arizona or some state recently got fined like $10 million well, because I, they under what, what I was, delivered. I was under the impression that they would just be paid for a minimum occupancy. 
they, no, they like get, there's a floor of if there's not if they don't hit a minimum occupancy number that they've contracted with that state. They find the state a certain number of million of dollars. Millions oh, okay. of dollars. Granted, only eight point four percent of prisoners in the United States were housed in private prisons in two thousand eighteen. Oh, yeah, that's okay. But so it's a very but still small conceptually, number. I mean, because but I'm, I'm just I'm pretty yeah. sure I'm pretty sure all federal prisons are government prisons, and I'm pretty sure that only state only side some you have, states you have, contract, and yeah. they only contract so much. Yeah, but it, still, it should be zero. It should be zero. I, and the fact that only eight percent of the population is housed in private prison, and it these private prison systems are billion dollar oh, yeah, companies. They make, they make some bank. Yeah, they're they're billion worse. dollar organizations is yeah. ridiculous. That means eight percent of our number, the whatever that number is, is huge. Mm -hmm. The number well, is yeah, fucking unbelievable. Twenty five percent of the world's prison population, or yeah. something. Five, yeah, five percent of our population is in prison. That well, high? Yes. No, it's. Yeah, no, okay, it's, the stat is, the United States is like 4% of the world population or something like that, Yeah, uh -huh. and it's, we have 25% of the world's prison population. That's because most countries probably don't have 5% yeah, of their absolutely. population in car. That's fucking high. Yeah, yeah our our one in 20 of us? Now, I don't believe that we're the worst because China no. exists and they don't report their numbers. Maybe, maybe not. I guess. Yeah. The thing is, China is so many people. They would have to. They would have to be imprisoning so many people to compete to with keep, us uh, because they have so many more. Yeah. <laughs> so they certainly they probably imprison yeah, a lot of per people. Per capita rate might be higher. Their here, per so. capita rate per capita rate here has to be higher. Just statistically, as of 2016, 2.3 million people were incarcerated in the U.S. at a rate of 698 per 100,000 people. That's like seven percent. Six percent, no, no. six hundred ninety-eight for a hundred thousand. So less than a percent. I'm a moron. Oh, I thought you said. Wait, I thought you said two point three. Oh, you're right. It's less than a percent. That's less than a percent. Point seven. In two thousand eight, yeah. the U.S. had around twenty-four point seven yeah, percent of the world's nine point eight million prisoners. So there's nine point eight million reported in the world. Wait, but we had that many prisoners. But was that at any given time, or was that in aggregate over the course of the year? Oh, I assume it's an aggregate. I assume it's an aggregate. Are you sure? I mean, that that's what would it? I don't know. Because no they could have clue. just captured the data at one point in time. They could have captured it at mm -hmm. one point in time, but it wouldn't be reasonable. And even if they did, I guess it still it wouldn't, wouldn't be that be bad. reasonable, but I don't necessarily have faith that it wouldn't be done otherwise. Right. Because a lot of data is collected unreasonably on purpose. So even if this data is inflated by double, it's still jarring. You know, it's even ridiculous it was, either way. Yeah. No, what I mean is, what I mean is, it's probably higher than that number. Oh. Yeah. Because he, if you count over in aggregate over the entire year, yeah. people are not in prison necessarily for the whole year. They may only be in mm -hmm. prison for three yeah. or six months. Yeah. So again, coming back to the healthcare thing, that's why I don't trust that we could ever do that to those systems because. The, we can't do this to private prison systems who are worth $1.3 billion, $1.8 billion each. UHC, United Healthcare alone, is netting how many? Like $209 billion in revenue every year, $212. It's some ridiculous number. Where, where's your lobbying power? Uh, let's see, UNH or UHC. Yeah, UHC. Well, UNH is the stock. Stock. Code. Oh, oh, their market <laughs> cap is two hundred eighty-two billion. There you go. And what, what was the revenue? Enterprise last year? value is three hundred ten billion. What was the revenues last year? Uh, it's high. It's in the two hundred revenue. Yeah. Okay. Wait. This just says, it doesn't say specifically when, but there's just a revenue figure that says 246 billion. 246. So that must be more recent because they're growing. They're, I think they're number five in the Forbes. But well, we should care about their operating income or their, their yeah. margins, not their revenue. Just saying UHC alone. So UHC and CVS Caremark are both in the top 10 of the Forbes 100 list. It, mm. Yeah, it looks like they're operating... Revenue is still like 20 billion. Yeah. And I think Walgreens is like 25th or 24th. 20 billion. Yeah. 
So of the top 25 companies, at least three what? or four are in the healthcare business. And if you make that's it pretty, the top 100, it's way more than that. That's pretty high. Well, and, and the thing is the healthcare insurance companies have consolidated in lockstep with the pharma companies consolidating because they're basically perpetually fighting each other. Yeah. So as one industry consolidates, the other industry consolidates to be able to compete. You're talking about the healthcare, like hospital systems, not hospitals like pharma and insurance or device and insurance. Cause pharma companies have also been consolidating and they're worth similar amounts. They, I mean, they're always consolidating because they basically have to track each other Yeah, because the healthcare insurance companies have to negotiate with pharma companies and if pharma companies were so much bigger than the health insurance companies, they couldn't negotiate. Pharma companies are not even close to as big as the payers. Not even close. I don't know what the next biggest pharma company of, is. In terms of in terms of revenue, no. But in terms of like the amount of people that use them, it's they're similar scale. I think in terms sense. of the industry. Right. So you're saying like they're scaled to each other, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Much more money passes through the payers. Oh, right, right, right. You're but saying they're scaled to each other. Yes, I, I get that. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I still don't think that there's anything we can do to change it. I'm a pessimist, man. Well, I've given up on society a long get, time ago, so you can't I, ask me these questions. I, <laughs> I get where you're coming from. My, the, what I would say in response is, um we have to do something about it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if we can or not, we have to. So we'll just have to find a way. Right. But that's why I suggested um, three actionable items instead of... Um, like a radical a decision like making idea. providers... Not providers, payers. Payers, sorry. Payers, non-profit. Because the that's payers, all they're doing is administration. Yes. Like all they're doing is moving money around... There's no, there's no innovation to be had there. Yeah. There's no like benefit to the market being there. It's just literally people right. directing funds. That's all that's happened. That's why, that's why government is so well suited for it. Right. And that's why it works so well in every country that's implemented it. Right. Because that's like, that's what that's for. Cause you're not stifling its efficacy with some change in policy. I get that. It's just right. a lot of money to suddenly... There's, it's too iffy. It's too, the, too, again, too many people have too many ideas of what they want a single payer system to look like. Too many states are going to get involved in that decision-making process. Certain groups are going to be very happy with the outcome. Other groups are not going to be very happy with the outcome. And at the end of the day, I think it's better to have three actionable items that are, when the average person hears what's happening, they're going to be on board. They're going to say 100% we support this. doesn't make any sense. It's not, I want... The only thing I have faith in passing successfully and being reasonably effective in helping people is things that are so cut and dry that there's no politic there can't be a party bias. Oh, they'll find one. I, I and I agree, but at least it's hard. <laughs> Single payer system already exists. It already exists as a party bias. I mean, that's it literally came up as a party, like a Democrat versus Republican thing. And that's just it's not going to work, man. I don't know. It's going to be deemed well, radical. The The flip side to it is that when you talk to citizens, voters, it's just like how um, getting voters to get on board with uh, back a little bit in the day, not that long ago, but like 10, 20 years ago now, getting voters to get on board with raising the minimum wage to $10 was really hard, but 15 was much easier because it's more of an effect on their lives. Like they can see and feel, and it feels like it will make a really big difference, right? It's hard to get voters excited about small changes because they have to expend their own political capital and their time. Do you time. think that those are small changes? They're to them, not, I, I don't think, think they are. Yeah, but to them presenting well, a big this is, change this is, without this an idea. This is how I'd qualify it. I'd say the... EMR issue is something that can be solved with the market. You don't need a government sure. to fix that. And then the lab issue and then the um, 
FDA. Um, FDA approval issue. They it's not that they're small issues, but it's hard for an individual who doesn't have any knowledge of mm. how this system to visualize works any, to yeah. understand how it's yeah. going to affect their life. Right. Versus if you say, what we're going to do is implement single payer healthcare at the government level to where you will pay another 6% payroll tax, but your healthcare is 100% covered. Mm-hmm. They understand what that means. They're like, oh, that means I can see the doctor every year. That means I can get my prescriptions. That means, you know, so on, so, so on and so forth. But you could that, also just is say, it fair to tell them what they think, what what they want to hear? That's essentially what we're doing. Well, is it's not necessarily a, what they want to hear. That's what your goal is. Of That's course, what you're but, trying to implement. But, but so tell me what you believe is going to have a reasonable outcome. Because I don't think a single, I don't think a single pair system is going to be, is going to work. There's going to be too many fingers in the final product. There's going to be too many people influencing the final product for it to actually give the average person what they want. And then once they don't get what they want, what they've been promised, they're going to not believe you anymore. That's what's happening with our political system every day. I think I realistically, I think that's a likely outcome currently. Like I don't disagree with you necessarily. Um, however, I think you, are underestimating the power of simple uh, and transformative leadership. And it's easy to say that, but the thing is we just don't have it currently in government. But if we were in a position where we did have it and you have someone who's elected president and says, this is the goal, I'm not going to let them mess this up. Right. We have like, a bunch of simple leaders. They're not going to get away with throwing in all this random shit and making this a 10,000 page bill. Right. Because that's just not going to be okay with me. And if they do that, I'm going to just tell all their constituents and say, hey, your representatives are fucking around and screwing you over. And then they bury it. I mean, well, can they? It's, it's a president making a, a all, state of the El Presidente address. has shown us how beautiful that can be. Okay, so what's, what's wrong with not just focusing on smaller, more precise steps like implementing standardized EMR? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just hard to get people to care enough to make it happen because it's such a... But uh, you can promise that by cutting administrative costs, you're going to remove strain on clinics and be able to offer improved healthcare. It's just not going to be like, there's not going to be much of a wow factor. It's not going to be as big of a change. If you're talking about how we're going to sell it, I'm just talking about small. I I like, I mean, that, that that one's not even politically. I think implementing small changes makes sense, but you have to factor in that there are forces that are going to try to politicize it. Mm -hmm. And they're going to likely be successful. So you have to be able to sell what you're trying to do to the general public to where it is unassailable in the general public. Right. And that, and when it's a, when it's something that has a relatively small effect, I mean, it's, it's a high effect, but for me as an individual consumer of healthcare, it's hard for me to see what that effect actually is. Okay. Labor force contribution to payer systems. Do we know what that is? They're going to have I still don't, a derogatory I, opinion towards a change that we're advising. But I'm just saying. Do you know what I'm kind of saying? No. No, no, no. So like people work for payers too. Yeah. Okay. Stakeholders. So I'm just saying like on the one hand, I get what you're saying um, about implementing change. On the other hand, you implement, you try to implement a change as big as that. And there's going to be backlash too. I get it. I just, yeah. I just figured that the whole like EMR, like standardization is so small. And like, I don't see that like well, negatively impacting the EMR thing again. I don't think you need government policy. You don't, you don't that. No, you, you don't, don't, but you do need a nudging. And you need the general population to understand because you can't, this is otherwise it's going to be a small, it's going to be a small thing going out to a few clinics, a few hospitals, and it'll take years for it to spread. So it it is something that you do need visibility of. Mm -hmm. You need, Mm -hmm. you need hospital systems to know that there's a better way. I I just don't think you necessarily have to go through government to get that visibility. You don't. You don't. No, you don't. You don't. It's about implementation. Like there's going to be no expediency. There already is no expediency as it is. I don't think. I don't think we need to consider that as part of a 
a part of the equation of getting something through politics because the market can can fix that as soon as someone implements an open source EMR format yeah. and as soon as that person has the backing to then push that to the public and inform the public how this works then that can fix what's, that what's problem. easier though then is is an individual coming out with a non-profit or not-for-profit free to use software and then having the capability to make it highly visible to a market where competitors are going to shoot it down or for the government to do it themselves. Cause, cause I don't trust them to accomplish a bunch of things. So you're but saying have the government thing? create the open source format. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that's what you that's were what I was. That's to. what I was thinking. That's where too. I was I getting that to. would be a more guaranteed like change for the better. That's not going to have as much radical. Yeah. You get wins. Impl uh, uh, implication. We we can. It's it's the same. Like I can I can package all three of those and say healthcare overhaul. And I use those two words, and it it doesn't mean anything to the general public. All it means to them is big changes are coming. It doesn't matter how big those changes are, if they're effective to the average person, then that doesn't matter. I mean, uh, actually, there's more. There's more if you say you know. Uh, healthcare overhaul and and there's like an over perceived implication of change you're going to come off as like letting down the public right so if anything do something small and say you know what there's going to be some that's transformative that's mm -hmm. transformative yeah well we are a little over time <laughs> so we'll go ahead and cap it there but uh well thank was, you for having me yeah yeah we appreciate it it was a lot of fun thank, thank you for you. being here <laughs> That was a, it was a good change of change of topic, I think. Yeah, for the definitely. Podcast, so appreciate it. We stayed linear too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even touch COVID, so we didn't break our promise. Not at all. No. <laughs> oh no. So uh thank you for listening. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Have a great day. Bye bye.